this morning, I want to talk about the test of a true church. The test of a true church. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to write an article for a local magazine about how to choose a church. And I think the spirit of that request from that editor was that there are so many churches to choose from these days, especially just in our little Montgomery, uh, Texas, it can be difficult to decide which one to attend. I think a lot of people base their decision on things like the location, it's convenient, it's close to home, Uh, maybe they like the facilities, they're attractive, Um, good programs and activities for their children, for their kids, for their young people, it's a friendly atmosphere, or how about the music? We just love the music, right? That's why we go to that church, because it's the music, and that typically is one of the uh, main criteria that people use to choose a church. But I would submit to you that these are all secondary considerations. If someone had asked Martin Luther or John Calvin or one of the other reformers to write an article about what to look for in a church, they would have listed three specific things. Number one was the accurate preaching of the gospel. Number two, the proper administration of the sacraments, or as we call them today, the ordinances. And number three, you ready for this? The regular practice of church discipline. You see, all the reformers agreed that these three things constituted the biblical criteria of a true church. And in, in their minds, if these three things weren't present in a church, then you shouldn't call it a church. It doesn't qualify as a church. You see, when the reformers compared the Roman Catholic Church in their day to the description of the church in the Bible... They became more and more convinced that the church had drifted away from the pattern of the New Testament church. To be specific, the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith alone had been distorted by a system of works by which a person could earn their salvation. They could earn their way to heaven. Also, the sacraments, uh, communion or the Lord's Supper and baptism had become corrupted by rituals and traditions And uh, they were now means to receive God's grace. In other words, they they were part of your salvation. You had to take communion and you had to be baptized in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven. And then thirdly, church discipline was being neglected. And as a result, heresy and hypocrisy were rampant in the church. And so the reformers protested against this heresy and against this hypocrisy by denouncing the Roman Catholic Church as a false church. Furthermore, many of the men who denounced the Catholic Church went out and started their own churches, which um, they wanted to line up with the Bible. They wanted their churches to be what the Bible said they should be. Well, not to be outdone, the Roman Catholic Church claimed that these Protestant churches, these churches that had been started in protest, uh, they they, they weren't true churches, they were false churches as well. And then adding to that, other sects like the Anabaptists um, and others developed during the early years of the Reformation, and they condemned both Catholic and Protestant churches uh, as false churches. And so this posed a dilemma to the average Christian living in those days um, in deciding where to go to church. I mean, how are they supposed to sift through all these conflicting claims in order to determine which church I should go to? And so the reformers were sensitive to this dilemma, and they sought to offer some pastoral help uh, by simply and clearly defining what they concluded were the biblical marks of a true church. In short, number one, the gospel was accurately preached. Number two, the sacraments and ordinances are properly administered. In other words, they're not a means to salvation. And thirdly, church discipline is regularly practiced. And they believe that where these three marks are, were evident that you could be assured that you had found the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think these traditional marks of a true church are just as important today as they were back during the days of the Reformation. The reason why I say that is because look around, right? There's all sorts of of groups who call themselves a church. There's the Catholic Church, there's the Baptist Church, there's the Methodist Church, there's the Lutheran Church, there's the Presbyterian Church, there's even the Bible Church, right? There's community churches. There's even the Mormon church. So how are we to tell a true church from a false church? How are we to tell a a good church from a bad church? Well, I think we should ask ourselves 
the same three questions that the Reformers posed. Number one, is the gospel clearly and accurately preached? Is the gospel, the saving, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone, is the gospel clearly and accurately preached? That's the first criteria. Second question, are the ordinances properly practiced? In other words, is communion a, a, a memorial service, a time to remember? It's a, not a time to have grace conferred on you, but it's simply a time to remember the, the, the cross. And, and baptism is not a means to salvation. It's not baptism re- regeneration. It's simply uh, uh, an outward uh, identification with Christ and the body of Christ when a person gets baptized. And then thirdly, is church discipline regularly practiced? Is church discipline regularly practiced or exercised? And I think these three questions, they're, they're a helpful guide by which we can evaluate a local congregation before joining. And if you could say yes to these three questions, then you could be confident that you have found a genuine church or a good church to attend. But if these three marks are not visible, then I would say you need to keep looking. And nowadays, if someone is looking for a church to attend, I think few, if any, ever even inquire whether or not the church practices church discipline. And if they did, they would have a hard time finding a church to go to since fewer and fewer churches are committed to practicing church discipline, which is confronting sin in the lives of its members and seeking to restore them to a right relationship with God and fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to what Al Mohler has said in an article he wrote called Church Discipline, The Missing Mark. He said, quote, the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. The absence of church discipline is generally not even noticed. The present generation of both ministers and church members is virtually without experience of biblical church discipline. Most Christians introduced to the biblical teaching concerning church discipline see it as an idea they have never before encountered. And I have actually experienced what Al Mohler says in that quote firsthand. In the first church that I had the privilege of pastoring, um, I concluded that there are a number of reasons why the practice of church discipline is virtually non-existent in the modern day church. First of all, it's misunderstood. Most people think church discipline is is, is a negative thing, it's a legalistic thing, it's a judgmental thing, it's a divisive thing, and for many it, it smacks of medieval inquisitions or Puritan, puritanical witch hunts. And I was sitting in, a, in, a, in an elder meeting, and uh, I proposed that there was a situation at hand that we needed to pursue uh, this situation with church discipline and to follow the steps of Matthew 18, and one of the elders looked across the table and said, well, Ken, who are we to judge? And I was like, whoa, I think we've got a long way to go as far as understanding what the Bible teaches about church discipline. So I think it's misunderstood. I think there's also fear. People are afraid of the consequences. They don't want to be misunderstood. They don't want to offend someone. They don't want to run people off. Or worse, they don't want to get sued. And um, I think you, uh, if you read the news, um, watch the news, you know that there are churches in our country uh, in recent years that have gotten sued, Right? Uh, for practicing church discipline. Um, and in fact, when I was trying to pursue a particular situation, this particular situation, someone responded, well, that's a great way to get sued, Ken. So I think there's fear. And then thirdly, there's what we could call the good old boy syndrome, right? We, we understand that here in the South, the good old boy, right? Most people don't like to stir things up. Uh, they just like to ignore the problem. If you ignore it, it'll go away, Right? Um, how many times have we heard the expression, just let the sleeping dog lie, right? Uh, just don't, don't mess with it. Just it's over there. Don't just leave it alone. It'll go away. The, kind of the good old boy syndrome. And then I think, frankly, there's just, there's just ignorance. Many Christians have never been taught their responsibility to admonish and restore one another, nor have they ever seen any positive examples of it in the church. And again, I remember one evening in a meeting talking about another situation that needed to be pursued in, according to the principles of Matthew 18. And I said, we need to exercise church discipline here. And someone looked down at me down the table and said, well, I've never seen that done before. Again, there was, just, there was ignorance. There was, there was just a lack of experience. 
I think there's just a few of the things that have caused churches to neglect the, the clear cut command given by Christ to protect the purity and the unity of his bride, the church. And unfortunately, the neglect of church discipline has had devastating effects on the church today. Listen to some tragic but true statements from some faithful, insightful men of God. John MacArthur makes this statement. He says, the contemporary church is faltering, threatened more by impurity from within than from persecution from without. Its health, testimony, and usefulness for the Lord are at stake. To help restore her to the position of holiness to which God called her, we must obey Christ's call to his church that is discipline. It must become a crucial part of the ministry, a responsibility we cannot neglect if our obedience is to be complete. Another gentleman named Carl Laney has written a helpful book called A Guide to Church Discipline. He said this in very vivid terms. He says, the church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester as an untreated boil oozes germ-infested pus and contaminates the whole body, so the church has been contaminated by sin and moral compromise. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanisms, so the church is weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle of social, moral, and spiritual change. This, this illness is due, at least in part, to a neglect of church discipline. The church that neglects to lovingly confront and correct its members is hindering the Lord's work and the advance of Christ's kingdom. The church without discipline is a church without purity, power, and progress. And then he concludes with this statement. He says, by neglecting church discipline, a church endangers not only its spiritual effectiveness, but also its very existence. And then one more Man, Jay Adams, writing in the handbook of church discipline, he said this. He said, much of the weakened state of the churches in the present time is the direct result of a failure in church discipline. Divorces occur, church splits take place, false teaching is introduced and the like because the means Christ outlined for forestalling such things, the process and application of church discipline, is no longer intact. He says, as I think of the homes that have been hopelessly broken, the estrangements that have permanently resulted and the misery that has been unnecessarily caused by the failure of churches to practice church discipline, my heart aches. He says, even more tragically, as I consider the ruins of many congregations torn by schismatic and factious persons who have been allowed to wreak havoc in Christ's flock and the sickness of many others weakened by the infectious toxin of unrepentant sin that circulates in Christ's body of believers, he says, I'm deeply moved. And above all, he says, as I think of the dishonor that has been heaped upon the name of our Lord because of the tarnished witness of the churches that harbor glaring violators of his holy commandments, I'm appalled. My prayer is that we, as a church, would share the passion of these men and that we would covenant together to courageously and lovingly and humbly hold one another accountable to live our lives the way the Bible says that Christians are to live. God never intended us to live the Christian life alone. We need each other to hold us accountable because we all have times when we're not at our best and when our flesh pulls us away from Christ and we want to go in ways that are different from what God's word has said. I think that's why we all can relate to that well-known line, right, in um, Come Thou Fount, a very blessing, when it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Not saying you don't love the Lord, right? But there's times when we're prone to wander. And that's when we need someone to care enough to confront us by speaking the truth and love to us, to show us where we're off base and to help us get back going in the right direction. Alexander Strzok says it well in his book, Leading with Love. He said, a critical test of genuine love is whether we're willing to confront and discipline those we care for. Nothing is more difficult than dis disciplining a brother or sister in Christ who is trapped in sin. It is always agonizing work, messy, complicated, often unsuccessful, emotionally exhausting, and potentially divisive. This is why most church leaders avoid discipline at all costs, but that is not love. It's a lack of courage and disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who himself laid down instructions for the discipline of an unrepentant believer. And so with that as our background, with that, with that as our introduction, I want to look with you this morning at the instructions that God has laid down in his word for dealing with sin in one another's lives. And I'm just going to address it from a more of topical perspective, not from just one passage, but a multitude of passages, and just really pull together all that the New Testament teaches on this area or on this issue or this topic of church discipline. And just by way of outline, we're going to look today at five elements of church discipline. Five elements of church discipline that every one of us needs to understand and faithfully apply in order that we could protect and preserve the orthodoxy of this church, the purity of this church, and the unity of this church. So let's look at these five elements of church discipline. First of all, the principle. Let's just look at the principle. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 6.1. And this couldn't be any clearer. God couldn't have made it any more obvious Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, brethren, addressing Christians, addressing the church, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now again, he's addressing believers here, brethren, and he's saying if anyone is caught in any trespass, and I don't think the, the, the idea here is that you got caught in sin. I think the idea here is that you got caught by sin, that you are trapped in sin. Sin chased you and tackled you and has you hogtied and you're on the ground. And if you see a brother or sister in the Lord who has been hogtied by sin, has been tackled by sin, they're trapped in some sinful situation, some sinful pattern in their life. That we who are spiritual are to restore them. And this is not, oh, you know what, I don't qualify. I'm, I'm, I'm clearly not spiritual enough to be a part of this process because I got way too much sin in my own life. So who am I to judge, right? No, this is simply saying if you have the Spirit of God in you, right, you're a believer, right, you are spiritually enough as long as you are not being a hypocrite and t- trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own eye, if you're dealing with the log in your own eye, dealing with the sin in your own life, then you can see clearly to help take the speck out of your brother's eye. God wants you to take the speck out of your brother's eye. As long as you are, again, dealing with the log of sin in your own life. And so how are we to do this? If anyone is caught in any trespass, they're trapped in some sinful situation or sinful pattern, habit pattern, he, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. That, that word is so critical, the word restore. It, right, out, right out of the gate, we get the, the, the whole spirit of this thing. It's positive. It doesn't say, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, walk upside of him with a big old stick and hit him inside. It doesn't, doesn't say that. You're not, don't walk in like you're the walking tall guy and you know, you're going to be the justice man and you're going to pray, right? No, you come in and you restore. It's restorative. There's, there's healing. This word restore is used for amending nets. It was used back then for amending nets or for setting and healing a bone. I think of a, maybe the picture of somebody climbing some tree and they fall out of the tree and, 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 and they break their arm and, and, and you don't walk up to them and say, well, you idiot, what were you doing climbing the tree? You deserve to break your arm. That's really not what they need to hear. Maybe you can have that conversation on, at another time, right? Maybe they need to hear that. That wasn't the smartest thing to be doing was climbing that tree. But initially, what do they need? They need you to come and seek to restore them in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Not harshness. You don't need to show up and, and, and with, with, an, with an attitude, right, and be harsh. You need to come with gentleness and also with humility, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, you realize you've got the, the seeds of that same sin in your heart, and it's only by the grace of God that it's not you. And that if, and if it isn't for the grace of God, it will be you. That you could have very, you may have not done that, you, but maybe you've thought it, and maybe you've never thought it, but guess what? It's in your heart, and you could do it. If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he what? Fall. So you come humbly 
recognizing, you know what, I need to be on guard here because I'm a, just as, I'm the worst sinner I know, right? I, I have this opportunity to help this guy with his sin, this gal with her sin, but I know I'm the worst sinner I know, so I need to come humbly. And again, the goal is to restore, to, to heal, to mend, to fix, so that that person can be useful once again. Just like that broken arm can be used again. Just like that torn neck can be useful again. Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5. This is how James ends his epistle. James chapter 5, verse 19. My brethren, sound familiar? Talking to Christians, talking to you, talking to me. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, the implication is there are going to be times when it appears here, he's talking about believers, right? They stray from the truth and we don't go, oh, isn't that a shame? Did you hear about so-and-so? No, you go out after them and you help them repent. One turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way. So you, you run out after them. You're on a rescue mission and you want to help turn them around and get them back on the track of truth. It says he'll save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So here's the principle, all right? All of us have the responsibility to confront sin in each other's lives so that we will repent and be restored to a right relationship with God and those our sin has affected, all right? That's what we're supposed to do. That's our responsibility. Now, let's consider how we're supposed to do it, okay? You say, I get it. I, I, I see it. It's right there, black and white. I have a responsibility to go and seek to restore someone who's in sin, who's straight off the path of truth. But how do I do that practically? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, he gives us a process. He gives us a process. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, 16, and 17, he lays out a simple four-step process to help professing believers to repent of their sin and change and grow and be more like him. You're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. Right here we have the four steps of church discipline. Verse 15, step number one, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So very clearly, it doesn't say if your brother sins, go and talk about it with someone else. Isn't that what we normally do? We're real good at that. Hey, you know, we need to pray for so-and-so. We disguise gossip and slander and prayer requests, Right? Or, or, oh, I'm so grieved, I'm so concerned. Listen, if you're so grieved, you're so concerned, if you're, you want to pray someone, you should go talk to that person personally and privately. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, one-on-one. -on -one. No one else needs to know. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Again, notice the positive nature of this seemingly negative concept of church discipline. This is all about winning your brother, winning your sister back. And the idea is, that, listen, you go and you confront them. You show him his fault. Show him his sin. And, and, and Lord willing, he'll listen to you and, and you'll win him back. And, and guess what? If that happens, step one, it's over. It's over. Nobody else needs to know. Just you and that person. You deal with private sin privately, and you deal with public sin publicly, right? So it could end right there. Well, Jesus anticipated that not everyone is going to be willing to be shown their fault, right? They're not going to be open to correction or confrontation. They may not listen the first time, and so he gives you a second step. Verse 16, if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. There Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And uh, in order for anything to be confirmed in a court of law, 
there needed to be at least one or, or excuse me, two or three witnesses uh, in order to verify uh, the evidence. And so here's step number two. Uh, if, if this person that you've confronted does not listen to you, you don't go, oh, man, that's too bad. Well, okay, I, just, I guess all I can do is pray for the guy. No, you go to step two. Step two is you find another person or two other people who mo- uh, hopefully, ideally, know this person and, and maybe even are aware of the situation, or at least you can bring them up to speed on the situation, uh, but they have a relationship with that person, and you have an intervention, right? A group intervention where you come together and you confront them together. And I love the safety here. It says, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. I think the witnesses are there, uh, first of all, to confirm whether or not uh, there's actually sin that's being committed and maybe there's been a lack of repentance. So they're there to verify that. But it also could be, they could be verifying the fact that the guy who did the confrontation the first time, that personal one-on-one confrontation, he's being way too hard on this guy. He's over the top. And this person seems very genuine and very broken and, and, and they, are, they understand they're wrong and they're trying to make some changes and they're working on it. And so maybe these two other guys will say, dude, cut him some slack. Let's give this guy some grace, right? So sometimes the accountability is there for the guy getting confronted or the, or the guy doing the confrontation. Again, notice trying to keep this thing um, close to the chest, if you will. Ken Sandy, in his excellent book, The Peacemaker, he said, quote, we should try to keep the circle of people involved in a conflict as small as possible for as long as possible. Let me say that again. We should try to keep the circle of people involved in a conflict as small as possible for as long as possible. We don't always do that real well, do we? We find out about something, and next thing you know, the whole church knows about it. The whole town knows about it, right? Shouldn't be that way. Should be as small as possible for as long as possible. And so there's a very deliberate, strategic step here, step number two. Well, what if they don't listen to the two or three people that come? To do this group intervention. Well, notice verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, again, it's like, wow, he's he's not even going to listen to two or three people who are confronting him. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is step three, that you announce this to the church. You tell it to the church. And this is where church discipline oftentimes gets controversial. Like, well, Tell it to the church doesn't mean really tell it to the church. I mean, come on. Surely they couldn't mean that, right? That's defamation of character, right? We can't do that in this society. That's not politically correct. Uh, Surely he meant just tell the elders, tell the leadership. That's telling it to the church. You're good. Well, I would hope that that would be the first step. That's the most natural step that if you've confronted an individual and they've not responded to your initial confrontation, your private confrontation, and they've not responded to your group intervention, that you would bring that to the elders, the pastors, the elders, and, and say, hey, listen, we've gone through these first two steps, and, and, um, and, and now we're handing this off to you as the leadership of the church. And that's where we would get involved as pastors and elders, and we would examine the situation, and we would probably go and make a, 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 an appeal of our own as elders, as pastors, and we would beg and plead with this person to repent. We've done that, and we've even prayed with them. Lord, grant them repentance, and then hopefully they'll respond, right, when the leadership gets involved. And yet if they don't, then we feel it's our biblical obligation as pastors and elders, to tell it to the church. You say, well, I don't get that. Well, look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, you see how this thing is escalating? Like you got one guy confronting him, he doesn't listen to him. You got two or three people, doesn't listen to them. But then you sick the whole church on him, right? In love. I mean, this is, a, this is an intervention. This is an entire church intervention. This is a group effort where you are lovingly pursuing this person and, and begging them and pleading with them to repent of their sin. And again, I think this third step should only be done as a, as a last resort when a person stubbornly refuses to repent. In other words, the confrontation must increase in its scope and its intensity in order to apply more and more pressure on the person to repent. 
And then the ultimate pressure, step four, it says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, if you've told the church and the church has gone out and they've prayed for the person and they've wrote letters to the person, they've met with the person uh, and they still don't listen, it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, i.e., treat them like an unbeliever. Why? Because they're acting like an unbeliever. Are we saying they're an unbeliever? We don't know that for sure, but they're sure acting like one. 1 John 2.19 talks about they went out from us because they were never one of us. And by the way, how do you treat an unbeliever? Do you, do you, are you mean to unbelievers? Are you harsh? Do you avoid unbelievers? You like speak to the hand, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't talk to unbelievers. No, you love unbelievers. You have a burden for unbelievers. You reach out to unbelievers. You share the gospel with unbelievers. And so that's the mode. You go into the gospel mode. You go to an evangelistic mode with this person. And you start sharing the gospel with this person. And so there's the four steps. And um, I would suggest to you that there's actually a fifth step that's not listed here, but it's really in the spirit of the scriptures. And, and it's really, I would say, a pre-step, okay? This is like the prologue step, the introduction step, and it's called self-discipline. Self-discipline. In other words, before you get to verse 15, where your brother has to come and show you your fault, how about being so in tune with the Spirit of God that you know when you sin. You know when you're involved in something that's not pleasing to the Lord. And guess what? You confront yourself. And you discipline yourself. And you rebuke yourself. And you restore yourself in the sense of going to God and confessing to God your sin and repenting of it so somebody doesn't have to come to you and confront you. And so I think that is an important step. We don't often think about it. self-discipline. Whenever I've taught this passage, whether it's been in a church setting or even more, more, more so in our membership class, we talk about this uh, quite at length to make sure everybody understands this whole process. Uh, people's questions is always like, well, how often does this happen? And my answer is, oh, it's happening all the time. It, this is an on, it's happening all the time. You're like, really? Like, you're now announcing from the pulpit like every week somebody's sin? I'm like, no, no, no. I think steps one and two are going on all the time. They should be going on all the time. We're sinners. We're a bunch of sinners and we need one another, right, to confront one another, to admonish one another. And so there's private conversations where one-on-one discipleship relationship, you're dealing with sin. And nobody else knows. Nobody else needs to know. Why? Because you're dealing with it. You're listening. You're learning. You're growing. You're humbling yourself. To that person who's, and then and there's maybe, maybe there's step twos going on all over the place. We just don't even know it. Why? Because it's, it's close quarters, and that's the way it should be. Nobody else should know. Nobody needs to know. And again, it's only in extreme cases when, you, when, when we actually have to announce something from the pulpit. And I'm thankful that we can count on one hand in the history of our church we've had to do that. Um, and so, because it's not, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And so there's the process. There's the process. Now let's look at the picture. I think this will help. This, this process seems a little wooden. And okay, yeah, I kind of see how it's supposed to go. Well, give us some examples. Show us how it's to be done with some real life situations. Well, let's look at the pictures. And I want to give you four pictures or illustrations of church discipline as it plays itself out in the scriptures. The first one is, is church discipline in the case of sexual immorality. Church discipline in the case of sexual immorality. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, well-known account, um, Paul rebuking the church in Corinth for not confronting a, a, a member of their church who is living in sin. He describes it in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. I mean, this is like gross immorality. I mean, pagans don't even do this. That someone has his father's wife. There was this incestuous relationship, possibly with a, a guy's mother-in-law or stepmother-in-law uh, or however you wanted, stepmom. 
Um, but notice the response of the body. Rather than being shocked and uh, grieved, it says you were arrogant. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. In other words, you're just letting this guy come to church every Sunday and nobody's saying anything about it, nobody's doing anything about it. And you all know about it. It's public knowledge. For I, in part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, I've already handed this guy over, and you guys should too. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. And here's the illustration, so good. Do, not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Those of you ladies who bake, and right, you know how that leaven works. Just a little bit of leaven goes a long way. And it permeates that entire loaf of bread. And so what Paul's saying, listen, don't you know that a little sin, right, in, in the church, I mean, it, it goes a long way. It is going to permeate that entire church. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our sacrifice also has been sacrificed. Get that sin out of the church before it affects other people. And then look at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Apparently he wrote them a previous letter. We don't have it in the canon. But he wrote them a letter and he said, hey, don't associate with immoral people. But notice he had to clarify now because they misunderstood him. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He goes, listen, you guys misunderstood me. You thought I meant to not hang around any unbelievers. You know, avoid the pagans, circle the wagons. We don't want anything to do with unbelievers, right? He says, no, I mean, that's ridiculous. You'd have to go out of the world in order to avoid immoral people, you, 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 you live in the same home with some of them, you live in the same cul-de-sac with some of them, you, you go to work with them every day, you, you go to school with them every day, you rub shoulders with them every day. And, and by the way, that's a good thing because they need Jesus and you're the way they're going to find Jesus and so you keep rubbing shoulders with them and reaching out to them. He says, verse 11, but actually what I, was, what I had in mind when I wrote to you, I was telling you not to associate with any so-called brother a professing Christian, someone who claims to be a Christian, and yet they are immoral, covetous, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, swindlers, not even to eat with such a one. Don't, don't, even, don't even take the guy out to lunch and sit down and act like everything's fine. Kind of small talk, chit-chat. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's wrong to, to have a meal with somebody who's a professing Christian who's living in sin as long as you are using that opportunity to confront them about their sin. The, the, the point is, don't just sit there and act like everything's okay. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not our job to judge unbelievers. Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And so there's an example we can learn a lot from. Church discipline for the reason of sexual morality. How about uh, church discipline for the purpose or because of the sin of idleness? Second uh, Thessalonians chapter three. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Check this out. Verse six. Paul says, "Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you see from us." Again, keep away from them. Don't, don't fraternize with them. Don't associate with them. Same thing he said in 1 Corinthians 5. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Jump down to verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And so there was apparently some freeloaders in the church in Thessalonica. They were, they were, they were leeching off other people. They were lazy. Uh, they were refusing to work and they were just trying to live off other people. 
Paul says, come on, I told you this, that uh, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Don't enable these people. I set an example of being a hard worker. Then look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There's the balance. In some way, there is a shame factor involved when you get put out of the church. You get ostracized from the body of Christ. And I think part of the, the, the point is that, that people get put out of the church because of their sin. And I think part of the reason is because God wants them to miss what they had. In other words, I have a choice to make. I can either have my sin or can I, I can have what I had in the church. And they have to make a choice. And oftentimes when they get out there and God gives them exactly what they want, right, and the church follows suit and gives them over, right, they realize this is not what I want. I want back in. And I'm willing to repent of my sin so I can get back in. I want to be a part of the church. And I love the church and the fellowship. I miss that. And I want to be back in. And so you admonish them as a brother. How about discipline for the purpose of heresy, somebody teaching something false, a heretic. Just turn to the next book, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul points out a couple guys. He names names here. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. These were two of the elders, the previous elders of the church in Ephesus, who had gone heretical. They, they had gone apostate. And so Paul um, minces no words here, unabashedly names their names. He calls them out by name. And again, everybody in the church knew these guys because Paul called them out, because they were heretics and he wanted to guard the rest of the flock from believing what these guys were teaching. And then lastly, just an example of discipline as a result of or because of divisiveness. What do you do when you have a divisive, factious person in the church? Titus chapter 3, verse 9 But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. In other words, some people just like to argue and wrangle about all this stuff that doesn't really matter. They stir up all sorts of strife and conflict. And he says in verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And so if you've got a guy in the church who's teaching some things or going around talking to people and is creating all sorts of strife and conflict and division, you pull the guy aside and you warn him. Say, listen, you're causing conflict. You're, you're creating division in this church. You need to knock it off. Stop talking about that stuff. Stop, stop teaching that stuff. And then you find out he's doing it again. He's still talking. What do you do? You pull him aside and say, listen, I warned you once. Now I'm warning you a second time. And if you do it again, you're gone. Third, third strike, you're out, right? And it's almost like you, you circumvent the whole Matthew 18 thing, because it's immediate, it has to be immediate, it has to be quick, because uh, the church is in danger of being divided by this factious person. So you need, to get, you need to remove them as quick as possible. So you just say, you're gone. You may not even have to announce it from the church. You just tell the guy, you're not welcome here anymore. So we see some examples here, some pictures of church discipline in action. And I think, just to summarize this, church discipline should be exercised against any sin that threatens the orthodoxy of the church, in other words, the doctrine of the church, number two, the purity of the church, or number three, the unity of the church. So anything that threatens the orthodoxy of the church, the purity of the church, or the unity of the church must be disciplined. So we've seen what God wants us to do. We've seen how he wants us to do it, along with some examples. Now let's look look at why he wants us to do it, the purpose, the purpose. And I think there's three purposes, at least three purposes, or three reasons for church discipline. We've already looked at um, a number of them. In Galatians 6, 1, we said that the purpose is to what? 
restore, restore. Church restoration, if you like that term, better use it, okay? If you're having a hard time, you're choking on church discipline, right? Say church restoration. I don't care what you call it. Matthew 18, 15 talks about winning your brother. It's all about winning the guy back. It's not running him off. The goal is not to run the guy off, right? That's, that's the, 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 the sad conclusion when a guy doesn't repent. He kind of runs himself off, right? The goal is not to run people off. It's to win them back. So there's restoration. And then I love what Paul says in follow-up to what he said in 1 Corinthians 5. He's addressing the same situation in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. In other words, they, they finally did what Paul said and they kicked this guy out. They disciplined him. And, and they addressed the sin in this guy's life and they said, listen, uh, uh, sufficient, okay, you, uh, enough already. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Apparently, this guy had repented. Church discipline was successful, and uh, he repented. And, they, and Paul's saying, listen, let the guy out of the doghouse, okay? Um, lighten up on the guy. Forgive him. Comfort him. You don't want to overwhelm him. When he's already bummed out as it is, right? Mourning over his sin. But I, I want to encourage you to reaffirm your love for him. And I think that's, that, that's the ultimate picture of of. of the purpose of church discipline is if even if worst case scenario, the person, had to, we had to treat them like an unbeliever and we had to put them out of the church and that because of their separation with the body of Christ, they missed the body of Christ and so they were willing to give up their sin and come back, that we would have an opportunity as a church to reaffirm our love for them and forgive them and restore them to fellowship here in this church. That's the, the whole purpose is restoration. There's a second purpose, and that's purification. Purification, and uh, we, we already saw that in 1 Corinthians 5, right? Get that guy out of the church, get the piece of leaven out of the lump, or you're going to have sin all over the place. The whole church will be infested with sin. But then look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, this is a, a, a shocking text because Paul is addressing elders, and uh, the responsibility of elders. And, and it tells us that, that here in this passage, Paul tells us that even elders are not above the church discipline process. He says, verse 19, this is 519, 1 Timothy 519, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Does that sound familiar? Exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 18, right? You've got to have two or three witnesses to confirm an offense. So don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Check this out, verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. In other words, don't cut the leadership any slack just because they're leaders. Don't go lighter on the leaders, right, than you would on the people. No, in fact, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. The, the people need to know if their leader has, is continuing in a pattern of sin they need to be rebuked in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. The few times we've had to follow through with a third step discipline where we had to publicly announce an individual who was continuing in their course of sin after multiple attempts to get them to repent there was just a soberness. There was a holy fear that just pervades the sanctuary when that happens. In fact, this is the first time we've ever taught on, I've ever taught on church discipline when we haven't been right in the heat of the moment addressing an issue. And that's why I chose to preach on it because we had to instruct and edify and equip the body to understand why are we doing this. And this is the first, this is like preventative medicine here, Okay. I'm so glad we're just doing it as preventative medicine. But the point is there's this holy fear that comes across the body, which is, I think is very biblical. You say, well, what are we supposed to be afraid of? Well, first of all, you should be afraid of your own propensity to sin. 
that you should be afraid of the deceptive and destructive nature of sin, that it got them, why wouldn't it get you? That sin has the power to deceive and destroy all of us. None of us are above it, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so we're fearful of our own propensity to sin. It reminds us of the deceptive, destructive nature of sin, and, we, and we're scared of sin. We're scared to do it ourselves, right? That's a good thing. And then secondly, we're fearful of the consequences of sin. Not only are we afraid to sin, we're afraid of the consequences of sin. Like Ananias and Sapphira, right? Acts chapter 5, you lie, you die. You say, what's the moral of that story? Well, very simple. God is passionate about maintaining the purity of the church, the integrity of the church. He's, he is holy, and he wants his church to be holy too. He doesn't tolerate sin in the members of his church. He doesn't allow his commandments to be mocked. No one disobeys him and gets away with it. Galatians 6, 7, you will reap what you sow. And if you sin, you'll get caught and you'll be punished. Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will what? Find you out. Listen, some of you sitting in here this morning are thinking about committing some sin. Going through some sinful situation, you know that what you're wanting to do, you're thinking about doing, you're being tempted to do is wrong. It would be disobedient. You're contemplating, you're, maybe some of you have been even flirting with sin. You're kind of getting right up to this, close to the edge of the cliff as possible. Listen, I exhort you, based on these texts, to stop today. Stop in your tracks today, because it's only a matter of time before you will fall off the edge of that cliff. And we'll be picking up the pieces. And if you're thinking about sinning, don't go through with it. Don't go through with it. Church discipline is necessary to preserve and protect the purity of the church. Sin is like a cancer that, that spreads rapidly through an entire church body, and that's why it has to be kept in check and dealt with quickly and, and seriously. So there's Purification is a purpose of church discipline. You have restoration, purification, and then finally, glorification. Glorification. Listen, whenever we obey God's commands, it honors and glorifies Him. It exalts His holy character, His holy standard that He's laid down in His Word. In fact, back in Matthew, Matthew 18, we stopped at verse 17, but just listen to what Jesus goes on to say, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two, or two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For there, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. That last verse is probably one of the Verses in Scripture that gets ripped out of context the most, right? How many times have you been to the prayer meeting, right, where, you know, nobody came, right? There was maybe three or four people at the prayer meeting. And everybody tried to encourage one another. Well, the Bible says where there's two or three gathered together, the Lord is in our midst. So let's pray. Well, that's, that may be true. That's not an untrue statement. But don't use this verse to make that case. Why? Because this is in the context of church discipline, the two or three that have gathered together in his name, right? It's the context is you're disciplining someone. You're confronting someone. You're seeking to restore, to win them back. And guess what? God is right there smack dab in the middle of all of it. And he's loving it because it's honoring him and it's seeking to obey him and preserve and protect the purity of the church. And so in order to honor the reputation of Christ and preserve the purity, the unity of the church, everyone who goes to church and everyone who professes to be a Christian yet chooses to live in direct disobedience to the commands of Scripture must be lovingly disciplined so that they would repent and be restored to a right relationship with God and their brothers and sisters in Christ. I know some of you are still reeling, trying to 
get your mind around all this and you're just having a hard time grasping, is this really what God intended by all these verses? Well, we got one more point, and I think this really settles the matter. We could call it the pattern. It's the pattern. Revelation 3.19, you may have remembered this past summer when Adam taught through the seven churches of Revelation when he got to the church in, in, in Laodicea. Chapter 3, verse 19. This is what Jesus said. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Jesus says, listen, you know who I love? I'll tell you the people that I love. The people I love, I reprove, I discipline. And of course, we are familiar with Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about the discipline of the Lord, the Father's discipline. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him for those whom the Lord loves. He disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In other words, you all get this. You get the discipline thing. If you're a dad, if you're a parent, you get the discipline thing. You get it. So do you kids. You just get it on the other end, right? You get the other end of that discipline. But, but you get the discipline thing, right? What's that all about? He says, if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen, if God doesn't discipline you, right? That's indication you're not one of his kids. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our own good so that we may share his holiness. Listen, if you're a parent, you get this. There should be no issues with any of this because you practice this on a daily basis in your house. And you kids get it, right? And, and even though it may hurt, right, when you're getting it, you know that your parents love you and that's why they're doing this. And there's that rare exception, right, that parent who says, well, I just love little Johnny so much, I just could never bring myself to spank him. Well, you go on living in sin. Because the scripture is very clear, Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. At least be honest and say, you know what, I hate my kids so much, I'm not going to spank them. That's what the Bible says. So again, discipline is all part of the growing and maturing process. We all experienced it growing up. I experienced it. Trust me. Talk to my mom. Okay? I experienced it. It's all part of growing up, all part of maturing. Ephesians 4 is all about the maturing of the body, uh, growing up to be more like Christ and being built up together and being strengthened. And right in the heart of that whole passage about spiritual growth and maturity and growing into the likeness of Christ is speaking the truth in what? Love. Speaking the truth in love. Some people are good at speaking the truth. But you speak the truth like, you know, you're doing a drive-by. Shooting, you know, you just, just leave carnage everywhere. You know, instead of speaking the truth in love. And so, beloved, listen, church discipline is an act of love. In fact, it's the most loving thing we can do for one another. Listen, I love you enough to do it to you. Okay? And I hope you love me enough to do it to me. Listen, you know who really loves you. You know who your true friend is, right? When you're in a crowd of people and then somebody comes over and you're like, hey, here, here's a clear. You got a booger. You got a booger hanging out your nose, right? Everybody else was kind of like, okay, that's awkward. I don't want to look, you know, and everybody avoids it. And, you know, listen, those people are not your friends, right? The one who really loves you is going to tell you, dude, you got a booger hanging out of your nose. Get rid of it, man. I love you enough to tell you that. I, I care for you. And I think the reason why we don't say anything at times to people is because we love ourselves more than we love them. 
Paul Tripp says this in his excellent book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, our unwillingness to speak the truth in love reveals a lack of love for God and our neighbor. We love our reputation or the relationship itself too much to confront. We remain silent when our brother steps outside the boundaries. The Bible repudiates covering sin with a facade of silence. It teaches that those who love will speak, even if it creates tense, upsetting moments. If we love people and want God's best for them, how can we stand by as they wander away? How can we let them deceive themselves with excuses and rationalizations? How can we watch them get more and more enslaved by the fleeting pleasures of sin? The truth is that we fail to confront, not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. We fear our others misunderstanding us for being angry with us or being angry with us. We're afraid of what others will think. We don't want to endure the hardships of honesty because we love ourselves more than we love our neighbors. He says, have you considered how often you've chosen to be silent when God was calling you to be the part of his rescue effort? We are called to accept moral responsibility for the things God reveals to us about others. To refuse to speak is to rebel against the Lord that we say we love and serve. So bottom line, you ready? God's desire is that no one who calls themselves a Christian would be allowed to live in an unrepentant pattern of sin without ever being confronted or corrected by another Christian. I'll never forget when we first taught this, when we started Lakeside some 12, 13 years ago, we were over at the Montgomery Elementary School uh, cafetorium or whatever they called it, cafeteria, and uh, I was teaching this in an equipping class setting and we were just kind of going through, okay, who's, you guys ready to join this church? You're going to be charter members. Let's go through the basics of, of the church. And so one of the weeks I was talking about church discipline, and I, and I remember the, the deer in the headlight look when I was teaching through this material, and they are just going, like, okay, I'm out of here. This is like a cult, man. What are they, what are they thinking, right? And then, then slowly the hands started going up, going, um, you know, Ken, I, I, I struggle with, like, overeating, and, you know, are you going to, like, confront me from the pulpit, like, oh, so-and-so is a glutton, you know, and you just all need to know that, and, you know, they were starting to think that we were just going to start calling out all sorts of sin in people's lives. Well, they're missing the point. The, 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 the point is this. This is not, like, listen, we all have sin. We could all get up here and confess sins that we're struggling with, that we're battling against, that we're trying to mortify, okay? This is not for sin that you're seeking to mortify, right? That you know, you're aware of, and you're seeking to repent of it, to change, to grow. This is when you knowingly and deliberately and intentionally pursue a sinful course of action, and you refuse to repent of that action. Even after multiple people have come to you and confronted you and begged you and pleaded you, tried to win you back, and you refuse and say, no, I'm going to pursue my sin. Church discipline is for those people, okay? So continue to fight, right? Battle, mortify the sins of the flesh. And as we do that, Lord willing, we'll never have to be in that position where we'll have to be pursued in that way. I started talking about the marks of a true church, what to look for when choosing a church. I hope you see now the importance of choosing a church that practices church discipline. You know, the only person that doesn't need to go to a church that doesn't practice church discipline is somebody that doesn't sin. Simple as that. If you don't sin, then go find any church you want. It doesn't matter if they practice church discipline. If you don't sin, don't worry about it. But church discipline provides that safety net that all of us need. And I want to close with words, uh, I think, that are shocking, but at the same time, tremendously refreshing. And this is from Joshua Harris in his book, Stop Stop Dating the Church. It's now called Why Church Matters. And he talks about choosing a church. And he says, these are some questions you should ask yourself in, in deciding what church to attend. Is this a church where God's word is faithfully taught? Are the leaders characterized by humility and integrity? Are they people who strive to live by God's word? Are the members challenged to serve? And you ready for this one? Are they willing to kick you out? 
You ever ask yourself that question? Is this church willing to kick me out? Because if it is, I'm, this is where I want to go. He says, why should you be excited about the potential of being expelled from a church? He says, you gain a wonderful sense of protection knowing that if you commit some sin and you show no repentance that your church will, will, won't put up with it. And they will plead with you to change. And they would patiently confront you with God's word. And eventually, if you refuse to change, they would lovingly kick you out. I don't know about you, but I feel safe in this church. I do. Because I know that you hold me accountable for the way I live my life. And it's comforting to know that, that I'm a part of a church where I will, will be lovingly confronted when I sin and even kicked out if I refuse to repent, but at the same time would be graciously restored the moment I do repent. That's the kind of church you want to be a part of. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how clear it is on this very controversial issue in our day today. Lord, help us to be faithful to live out these principles, to apply them in our own personal lives and in the life of this church, Lord, that we would fulfill our responsibility to deal with sin first and foremost in our own lives, but also in the lives of one another for your honor and for your glory, and that you would grant us grace, Lord, to do it in a manner that is gentle and is gracious and is humble and uh, is kind, Lord, and loving the way you intended. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.